Here we go. It's Monday's Long Gospel Bible taking a look at it on this November the 16th in the year of our Lord 2020. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and we're taking a look at the readings for the last Sunday of the church year, November the 22nd, 2020. And the following week, we begin the new church year with Advent. Old Testament reading is from Ezekiel 34. The epistle is from 1 Corinthians 15. And the gospel is from Matthew 25. We're going to be examining 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 20 to 28. So without further ado, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, that can cause a problem for a number of people because they have a misunderstanding of the word first fruits. It sounds like Jesus was the first one who was raised from the dead after he had fallen asleep, which means he had died. But there were a number of individuals prior to Christ that were raised from the dead. In fact, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, who forgets about Lazarus? So how can Jesus be the first? Well, it doesn't say that he was the first chronologically. The word first fruits means that he was the basis of all those who have been raised from the dead. So even when Lazarus was raised from the dead, Jesus, in talking to Martha ahead of time, says, yes, I agree with you that he will be raised from the dead on the last day, but I'm going to raise him from the dead today. And that is in light of the fact that Jesus is the foundation of all those who are raised from the dead. 4, 21, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Now, this is explained elsewhere, that the, the man who brought death to us is none other than Adam, as he sinned in the Garden of Eden. And the individual who, through whom came the resurrection of the dead is none other than Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the opposite of Adam in bringing life and resurrection. Now, this is really hard to understand, that because of the sin of Adam, every human being from there on, after Adam and Eve, inherited original sin. This is the reasoning of God. It doesn't make sense to us because how can the sin of Adam result in us being sinners? Yes, it's handed down through birth. That is God's explanation, but it really still doesn't explain to us 
why God says that. And it gets back to something I was saying last week, is that the Bible does not explain why God does what he does or says what he says. It only reveals it. And we as Christians, through faith, believe it. So if somebody asks me, oh, how come you are a sinner? Were you not born with a tabula rasa? What, what does that mean? That means a blank slate, that you are neutral. And you began to sin when you came of age. In fact, there are some Christian groups that don't believe that children sin until they come to a certain age. And therefore, they aren't to be baptized as infants until they're able to make a decision for Christ. That God says sin came into the world through Adam, and every person, therefore, is born in sin. That is the teaching of God. It may not be understood by us, why he says that. Why didn't every person after Adam and Eve choose to sin as did Adam and Eve? Like Cain murdered Abel. Wouldn't that make him a sinner? No. He was born with original sin, and that was handed down from Adam and Eve. So what we have here is not an explanation that satisfies our minds but it is a revelation to which we hold fast that by one man came death, so also by one man comes the resurrection of the dead. And in case you're not thinking that that one man is Adam and the other is Christ, listen to verse 22. Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So that makes it very clean that Adam is the foundation of sin for all humanity. And Christ is the foundation for those resurrected from the dead. And the dead means more than just in the grave. It means the dead in sin. And so it's referring, obviously, to those who are made alive through faith in Jesus Christ. That's explained in verse 25. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 15. But each, I'm sorry, Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, so he's the foundation. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, what does that mean? How does somebody belong to Christ? It's clear from the Bible, it isn't on the basis of your works, it's on the basis of faith. 
This is so important to understand. I spoke about this in the sermon yesterday. Here, here's a principle of law and gospel that could be very, very helpful. Christ never applauds someone only because of their works. He's always applauding them because of the faith behind their works. Similarly, God never criticizes anyone just for their sin, but for the unbelief behind their sin. Take a look at David and Bathsheba. Nathan criticized David because through unbelief, he had broken every one of the Ten Commandments in regard to Bathsheba. And this week's lesson is also on Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. The, the sheep seem to be commended because I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Now, Jesus is the one that they did these things for. And they remark, we don't remember when we did that. We don't remember seeing you hungry and feeding you or thirsty and giving you drink. But Jesus then says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It's not that the goats did not do these things, but they did not do it as to the brothers of Christ because they were unbelievers. So they always did these works, visiting the prison and giving somebody something to drink who was thirsty, clothing those who needed to be clothed. They always did those out of self-interest. And therefore, they were not doing it with the proper motivation, love of Jesus Christ. So, verse 23 makes it clear that those in Christ shall be made alive. And being in Christ means trusting the promises of Christ. So, don't forget that important principle of law and gospel. When God criticizes someone, it's always because of unbelief. And when he applauds someone's works, it's always because they do so in faith. So at his coming, those who belong to Christ will be resurrected from the dead. Their bodies will leave the grave, go into heaven, rejoined with the spirits that have gone on before them at their death. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now, why would he be destroying every rule every authority and power. Aren't there some that are good? Well, once more, Scripture interprets Scripture. You need to go to the next verse 
25 to understand what Paul is writing about, about the rule, authority, and power that is destroyed. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So the power of the devil, with God's permission, is a power that is evil. And that's a purpose that Jesus even said he came for, to destroy the works of the devil. And therefore, that rule, authority, and power on earth that is evil needs to be destroyed and put under the feet of Jesus. In fact, in a very famous movie, if you'll recall, about the death and crucifixion of Jesus, it begins with Jesus standing on a snake, who is, of course, the devil. And that shows that he has put all his enemies under his feet. But what's the last enemy? We often say we're tempted by our flesh, the world, and the devil. But when we fall into that temptation and have a life of unrepentance, then we end up in death. In fact, it's the curse of the law from a law and gospel perspective. He that sins, death is the result. So the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's what verse 26 says. But how is death destroyed if even Christians end up dying? Well, the, the destruction is the curse of the law because the Christians do not undergo a death eternally in hell. That has been destroyed by Jesus taking upon himself our death. That's what the cross is all about. He died so that those who trust in him might live. What a tremendous burden is taken off of every Christian because as every other religion in the world teaches, the way that you get through death is by your works. And so you always got to be talking about, well, what are my works that I am doing that will help me? In fact, yesterday's sermon was about the man who went on a journey and he left talents back for his servants. Five talents, two talents, and one talent. And the five-talent person went in and made five more talents in the marketplace. And the two went in and made two more. But the one who received one talent buried it. When the master returned, he was quite pleased at the talents from the five and the two, but the one who buried it did so because he said, I know you're a hard man. You do not reap where you haven't sowed. 
And of course, he wasn't describing the master. He was describing the work of the devil. And therefore, he had no faith at all in the master. And he probably didn't believe he would return. So by burying the money, if he did return the master, well, he could give it to him. If he didn't return, well, he could keep it for himself. And no one would know the wiser because he wasn't in the marketplace using the master's money to earn more. Now, unfortunately, because in this talents that are given out, we have this thing you've heard before about stewardship, that you need to be aware of your time, talents, and treasure. Now, the word talent is the same in the English, but in the parable, it's money. It's not gifts that God has given you. And do you want to look forward to Judgment Day as to how well you've used your talents in the sense of gifts? How profitable have you been? Well, you're a poor, miserable sinner that at times deserves nothing but temporal and eternal punishment. So it's very difficult to be looking at your use of your talents as a way of getting to heaven. The difference between the one who had five talents and two talents versus the one who buried his one talent is that of faith. The five and two talent servants believed, trusted the word of the master that he would return. Whereas the one talent was taking no chances in case he didn't return. Faith is definitely what God looks for in good works. And that's why in Matthew 25, the good works that the righteous are doing are not the cause of their salvation, but instead become the evidence to God that they truly have faith. And that's why God says at the beginning of Matthew 25, inherit the kingdom of God. Not merit the kingdom of God, but inherit it. All right, getting back to 1 Corinthians 15. It says in verse 27, after the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted. That's E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D, who put all things in subjection under him. That's referring to God the Father. When all things are subjected to him, that is the Father, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Now this can cause a lot of confusion if not understood properly. How can we say that though the father is not under subjection, the son is? Does that therefore not contradict that they are equal? Well, it all depends what subjection means. Subjection, in this case, 
means that the son received his mission from the father. In fact, Jesus himself explains that a number of times as he looks to the father and thanks him for the work that he is able to do. It is not a difference in equality any more than one can say that in marriage, because the wife is subject to the husband, that therefore the husband is superior in God's eyes. No, from the time of Genesis, the husband is made head of the household because through him, the family is to follow the will of God. I I can't think of any time I've had to be in subjection over my wife in the sense of, should we baptize our children? Should we go to church, et cetera, et cetera, because she's in agreement with all that. But if I was married to someone who was an unbeliever and we had children, then it would be necessary that I, as the head of the household, would underscore the need for the children to be baptized. So it does really make a difference to be in subjection to someone, but it doesn't mean that in Christ they're not equal. Because in Galatians, Paul says, there's no distinction between male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't distinctions. But in Christ, there are no distinctions because they are equally regarded as sinners and equally told that they are righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. So a husband is not superior to a wife in the eyes of God in the sense that he has more salvation than the wife? No, of course not. In fact, in our day of age, where we're dealing with a lot of what we call single mothers who have to, on their own, bring their children up, either because their husband died or left them, it's become very important for the church to help them out. And and therefore... There are programs in a number of churches that help such women in the bringing up of their children. I remember when we had vacation Bible school, we had a number of children that did not have fathers and that were attending. And I remember one specifically that decided on his own, I think he was around 13 years old, to start attending our Sunday school every Sunday. And it ended up bringing his mother to the church. So we dare not say that being in subject to someone means that they are inferior. I'm a pastor. Who am I in subject to? Well, I'm in subject to definitely God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, but I'm also in subjection to the members of the congregation. For example, when it comes to doctrinal matters, then I have the say in the congregation. 
Uh, recently, a individual with the LWML came to me and said, we'd like to have LWML Sunday uh, next in, in two weeks. Uh, would you object to that? I said, well, if you're asking me a doctrinal question, then I have the authority to tell you what the answer is according to the Bible. But you're asking me a question that doesn't have to do with doctrine. And if that is the pleasure of the women of the LWML, then we're definitely going to do that because I'm in subjection to you when it comes to such matters. Uh, a lot of pastors may think that they are the people to go to to answer all questions in the church. And that's not true. Uh, a lot of times, if the answer is not in the Bible, then a pastor cannot say, well, this is God's will. And so then the congregation needs to make that statement. So 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a lot of hope that though we are sinners through Adam, we are also given life through Jesus Christ. And therefore, we need not fear Judgment Day at all because we will be taken into heaven through the faith we have in Jesus Christ. On tomorrow's Law and Gospel, which is a Rumination Tuesday with Mark Smith, we'll be taking a look at a hymn that is a sign for this last Sunday of the church year. It's entitled, The Head That Once Was Crowned With Thorns. Until then, I'm Tom Baker. God bless you. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.